0: Missing blanks, Lee or anybody, or did I get the blanks this morning? How'd I do? Oh, yes. Last one, receive and cleave. Receive and cleave, or cling. That'd be fine too. Lee. Two D two faith, showing what's lacking of the faith of those spoken of in John two twenty three to 25. Are there any other blanks that were missed? Okay. Any uh, questions? We covered a lot of ground. Some of your questions, I'm just giving you a heads up. I may punt. If you're asking something that I plan to really highlight in the coming weeks, I might give a short answer and say, let me, let me get there. But I can also use that as a wonderful excuse for anything I don't know. So be warned. Chris.
1: So I remember a while back... Hold um,
0: on, the mic, the mic does not appear to be on. Check. Oh, there right. you go.
1: So I remember a while back you had uh, a sermon about ears to hear and eyes to see. Yes. And uh, how God used that It is part of the winnowing process. Yes. Could you speak to that issue again as it affects today? and Because uh, we see a hearing and a seeing that did not appear to be to hear or to see. And I'm just
0: curious. Absolutely. That's a, that's a good question. It'll take a few minutes to track down that trail. It actually ties in with Terry's message from last week. So if you go to Isaiah 6, and this is sort of tying in the issue of predestination, sovereignty of God, um, as it fits together, um, and so that the scripture can speak of these things from different angles or vantage points. Isaiah 6, um, you know, I've been to, I've been to commissioning services where someone going into the ministry and they quote this passage. And I always think it's an odd passage to quote. What people generally like is the whole, who will go, send me, you know, and the, 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 this person's being sent. But what Isaiah is told the result will be and what his ministry will be is not what many people, I think, going into ministry would like to hear, um, which is. Um, pick it up from verse seven. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this is taken away this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, your sin is atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And that's the part you get at these commissioning services, and yay. And he said, Go and say to the people. So what message did Isaiah get commissioned to say? Keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and be healed, and so that seems like an odd message to send someone to do, I mean, it looks like God is saying, I'm sending you to stop them from believing, Um, this is also a passage that John will quote extensively in chapter 12, Um, keep your finger here, go to John 12, yeah, Part of the reason this, I, part of the reason I'm willing to go down this this not rabbit trail, Chris, but is it does absolutely tie in with John, um, so it, it's worth the ten minutes just so it'll take to go through here. So if you look at uh, verse 39 of chapter 12 and 40, well, actually let me let me go back to all the way back to uh, 37. So 12:37 closes out Jesus' public ministry. This is kind of a summary statement about. Jesus, three and a half, four and a half, depending on how many Passovers there are, ministry. And you get this. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah, sorry, I've been listening to British authors lately on Audible, and they say Isaiah. I'm not trying to be pompous, but I'm I'm listening to an author, and he's Isaiah. Um, So that the word spoken by Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Um, Which is Isaiah 53. Therefore, they could not believe for again Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and that would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. What's amazing there is the, and Terry, Pastor Terry mentioned this last week, the the vision of the Lord in the temple, the heavenly temple. John says the, the whole the, the, the glory of his robe and filled the temple with his glory. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Which member of the Trinity did he see? Verse 41, Isaiah said these things. Because he saw his glory and spoke of him. It's preincarnate Christ that Isaiah saw. As whoa. But, um, but you'll notice that he references the hardening aspect, the blinding motif in verse 40. He's blinded their eyes, hardened their hearts. Lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. So back to Isaiah six. I'm just showing how this connects in with John. Um, John will, will pick this up. The question then is why? Why would God harden if God is God disingenuous? Or that's a nice way of saying is he lying? Is he deceiving us when he says? Why would the wicked perish? I, I would that the wicked would repent. I don't delight in the death of the wicked. Why, why does God say that? Why does Jesus invite everyone to come? Why does he say, now turn none who come? Why does he weep over Jerusalem? How, how often I would gather you up like a mother hen with her chicks, but you were not willing. And then we read here, God is sending Isaiah to fully and finish hardening this people. And you think, well, that, "How, how do you, are you talking on both sides of your mouth? What's going on? It's a very fair question. I want to note one thing here. This is using a common motif of sensory numbness, spiritual sensory numbness. The seeing and the hearing that he's speaking of is a spiritual seeing and hearing. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So... We're using metaphors of sensory deprivation, sensory numbness, sensory malfunction. This is consistent with Jesus having eyes that see, eyes but do not see, and ears but do not hear. It's it's that same motif of spiritual sensory deprivement, Um, and it links to something else. So, um, let's let's take a look briefly at. um, Let's go a little later in Isaiah. To ooh, where is it? Fifty? Where is he mocking their their gods? Um, it's actually forties, I think, where you see this type of uh, this type of language used some more. Give me a second. I wasn't ready for this, so I got to find it. It's underlined in here somewhere. Forty-two. Yeah, the gods of the people—they have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. Yes. Forty-one. I'm looking at forty-four. Thank you, D- thank you, Dave. <laughs> 44. Um, it, it's, it's, and part of the reason they're yelling us out is this is a common thing. So the first thing to note, Isaiah uses, Jesus uses of these people the language of spiritual sensory numbness, spiritual sensory deprivation. That's what it means to have a heart of stone. Your heart isn't beating. It's not tender. It's also some of that's the heart that's hard that's blinded eyes or eyes that don't see or ears that don't hear. It, it's all playing upon spiritual sensory numbness or deprivation. Now, notice the next point that's interesting. Verse chapter forty four, verse nine: All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witness neither see nor know. They may be put to shame. Now, the irony is, of course, these idols have painted faces and painted ears and painted eyes and painted mouths. And so the, the primary line upon which God rebukes and mocks these idols of the people is they have eyes that see but don't see. And they have ears but do not hear. And they have mouths but do not speak. And they can't move about. Um, that's interesting. So there's a connection already between the, the judgment, the rebuke of the people for having ears that do not hear and eyes that do not see, is a similar rebuke of the idols that have painted eyes and painted ears and painted mouths. Um, so, uh, what what fashions a God, who fashioned verse ten, who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold all his companions will be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth, they shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals, he fashions it with hammer and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his strength fails. So the point here is the idol only exists at the behest of the labour of men. Our God, who is neither tired nor faint, doesn't need us. He doesn't need our offerings. He has the cattle on a thousand hills. In contrast, these idols need the wearisome hard work of men, toil of men. They're beholding to the men and the blacksmith and his sweat and his hammer. For their existence, that's the point. The carpenter stretches out a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with a plane and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedar and he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong because the trees among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. By the way, God's rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for man. He takes part of it and warms himself and kindles a fire and bakes bread and he makes a god and worships it. He makes it to an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and satisfies. He warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into an idol, his god, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my god. To to quote a preacher who I won't name, um, you, 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 gotta, you gotta make sure you pay attention in that day in log crafting school otherwise you end up burning the god end and worshipping the fuel end you know it's a joke it's a joke um, that's a pretty important thing this is the end that's god this is the end that's fuel no the, the whole point is the same log that you didn't make grow you're both eating food and heating yourself and cooking your food and saying you're my god you made me no you made it this is a god you made right um Um, then verse 18, they do not know, nor do they discern. He has shut their eyes so they cannot. Ooh, that's interesting. He has shut their eyes. So they cannot see their hearts. So they cannot understand. No one considers nor is there knowledge of discernment to say half of it. I burned in the fire and I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten and I shall make the rest of it an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray and he cannot deliver himself. Is there not a lie in my right hand? That's interesting. So here you get some of the blinding eyes language. Um, let me go back there there's more i'm eventually going to get to psalm 115 which i think is going to um, tie it together but let me look at uh see if i can find another one here who else who else said they found a mocking idols passage in the 40s 41 21. 41 21 um let me just look at my phone. That that is you're right. Um hold on. Um, give me one second. And Isaiah <inaudible> Forty eighteen. <inaudible> Forty eighteen. There you go. Ata'ai <inaudible> To whom then shall you liken God? Or what likeness compare him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it with silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that it will not rot. He seeks out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. And again, notice the impotence. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and his inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth an emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely are they sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and see who created these, who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by the Lord? Have you not known? Have you not heard? We sang this this morning, right? Um, the Lord is everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary, his understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, to him who has no might. He increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men fall exhausted. But those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up like eagles, they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow weary, they shall walk and not faint. So turn turn to Psalm one fifteen. Um, there are more passages, and it would take me a few minutes to pull them up, and I may have some references written in Psalm one fifteen to go to. But Psalm one fifteen sort of ties this all together. Um one thirty five that Psalm one here we go. Okay. We'll start from the beginning. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. But to your name give glory, for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And in contrast, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but but do not feet feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound with their throat. And look at verse 8. Those who make them shall become like them. So do all who trust in them. So when God starts speaking to people, saying, you have eyes, but do not see, and you have ears, but do not hear, he's saying, you've become like your idols. It's a judgment So sending Isaiah isn't some capricious thing where God's being a jerk. Rather, it's based on Psalm 115.8. What happens to people who worship idols? They become like them. What happens to people who worship Jesus? They become like him. Um, There's a basic principle. What you revere, you will resemble. What you behold, you will become. What you worship, you will start to look like. You will be conformed to the image of your God one way or the other. You will. You can't help it. It's, It's the way God made us. So what you're beholding, what you're witnessing, what you're worshiping, what you this what, part of the reason why it matters, like what you watch and what you listen to, and what you read, because what, what you're, what you're gazing at intently, what fills you with the light will shape you, it will. Um, and so here, we're told what characterizes the idols, their impotence, and they look like they have eyes, but they don't see, they look like they have ears, but they do not hear, they look like they have mouths, but do not speak. And then worship them long enough you become like them so all of the language in the gospels and in isaiah of these people have eyes but do not see ears but do not hear we're to understand that is the final stage of conformity of an idolater which means god sending isaiah to finish that confirmation is judgment it's not capricious it's righteous judgment it's not um some some fickle, uncaring God. Rather, it's, it's the final judgment. Jesus teaching in such a way that some of the crowd miss it is a judgment on those crowd because inwardly they're hard idolaters. That, that's the idea. Greg, you want to pick up on this? Yeah.
1: <clears throat> yeah, I was just going to say it's an interesting point. Um, in contrast, these idols that, that are made by mortal man— um, are, are exactly that, just idols. But we worship the living God who, whom we can't put into a box, whom we can't, you know, describe. And yeah. even this morning, you know, where else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. I, I don't exactly understand it all. And, and that's part of you being God and me yeah. being man As I receive from you what is true and yeah. believe it. Not that I can fathom and comprehend all things and then say, yes, you are right, and I will believe in you. So I just think that it's interesting You know that contrast between idols and and the God that we worship that cannot be contained.
0: So in the context of chapter 6, where Jesus talks about those the Father has given to him, and no one can come unless it's given him, we we have to start, and and the biblical narrative starts with the assumption not that there are these nice people or even these neutral people. If you start with the nice people or the neutral people, then you do end up necessarily having kind of the fickle, Jerk God because He only gives some of them to Jesus. These nice people, these neutral people. You, you need to start with the rebellious, idolatrous, blinded themselves, deafened themselves people. The people who want, who John 3, they don't come to the light because they hate the light, lest their deeds be exposed. You start with that people, and then you, you, God graciously gifts some of those people. To Jesus he, he's, his spirit's going to birth some of those people it's gonna happen and it's grace but if you start with the very nice or even the sort of nice oh, they're okay people you have a very different story you've got to start with I mean there's a, there's a reason in the tulip acrostic the T for total depravity is, is the linchpin is first you've got to start with what is the state of man if God's coming upon the decent sort of people what could you expect it's not really their fault you will have necessarily have a very different picture and story, which is, I think, partly why so many in churches today have this tame God. They've got a man-centered theology, and then God's got to just, you got to explain why he isn't just healing every disease and why he isn't just granting every prayer and why he isn't just giving everything someone asks. Because if you start with the very nice people and God could just do it, well, then he, he is kind of being stingy. I mean, he could have stopped that. He could have done this. Why did he? And then God's basically having to orbit and revolve around man um but if you start with the which is is the biblical narrative the very bad terrible people um and the very bad rebellious terrible people who i mean this and this is i sent you prophets and you killed them i sent you my son and you killed him i sent you I, I time and time and time again that's the, that's the biblical that's the biblical narrative and if you have a problem have a problem with that at that point because that's that's foundation to then god's gracious gift of some on top of that if if you don't greg take it take it away greg run with it
1: i just want to say amen and then say how beautiful are the feet of those that (laughs) preach the good news and that's (laughs) that's why we are sent both here and i don't i don't see alex in here but i'm trying to you know spot him but that's also why we send others into all these nations so that the the word of God, which is the power, which is, you know, how else can they believe without hearing? How can they hear unless one is sent? So just reminding all of us of our mission, which is the Lord's mission. I
0: actually used you in an illustration like eight years ago to try to make this point. And and, and this is, this is critical. This is critical to get. So, so John six speaks of inability. No one can come and whatever stripe of theology you have, you got to deal with this statement of inability a lack, no one is able no one can come unless and our temptation is to say if if person X is unable to come to Jesus then person A can't be blamed for not coming to Jesus that, that's the temptation the logic and so then all sorts of people trying to say well, oh, actually no he's not saying they can't come is it you know but it, it, that's not that doesn't always hold true so I think biblically the inability is actually the capstone of, of, of someone's culpability it, the equivalent would be someone who is, so doesn't want to see something, they're willing to go to the lengths of gouging out their own eyes to stop them from seeing it. You might say, wow, they really didn't want to see that, whatever that thing was, right? And it actually establishes guilt rather than relieving it. So the example I gave is if, if, I, if Serena and I and the family took off for a week to, to go somewhere and I, and I contracted with you, Greg, to mow my lawn, right? Do you remember this one? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I just stole it from R.C. Sproul, so it's... It's me lifting it from R.C. Sproul and inserting Greg into it. Um, and I, I'd say, hey, Greg, I'm going to pay you. We agree upon a price. And I say, now, you got to be careful. There's a hole in the corner of my yard, and you got to stay away from it. There, there, there's a deep pit, and you got to not go near the deep pit. So make sure you say, I will stay away from it. You don't need to mow around the pit. You just stay away from the pit, Greg. Just get out of the pit. And we hop in our, in our van, and we drive away. And Greg comes over. And the first thing he does is go goes jumps in the hole. <laughs> and I come back. And there's a wet, hungry Greg. And I say, Greg, I paid you. Let's imagine this. Scenario. I pay him in advance. Here's your money for mowing my lawn. I say, Greg, I paid you to mow my lawn. My lawn's overrun. You didn't do anything I told you to do. And Greg says, it's not my fault. I'm stuck in this pit. Would anybody buy? The, oh, I guess I can't blame Greg for not knowing. No. no, because if it's your fault, you're in the pit. Then, yes, I can blame you. And if it's your fault, you're blind. And if it's your fault, you're deaf. It's the same reason why, when someone reaches a level of slavery and addiction, you can imagine somebody who won't leave the house without their drug of choice. They won't, you know, whatever it is. They're such a slave, they, they won't. That doesn't remove guilt. It's how, 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 when, when I used to drink as an unbeliever, it, You you were testifying this the other day. I I was at the point where I didn't want to go somewhere unless I could be explained how I'd be able to drink there. Would they want to go to Tom's house? Well, is Tom going to mind if I bring a six pack? I don't. I'll stay home like that. My my addiction, my slavery doesn't remove guilt. It's how 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 bad of a drunk is Jeremy? That's how bad. Right. You, You get the idea. Um, so, so the greater your slavery in certain axes, actually, it shows the greater length of culpability and the greater lengths of of, of depravity. How bad are these people? Are they even slightly soft-hearted towards God? Oh no, they have blinded themselves with their idols. Oh no, they have deafened themselves with their gods. Oh no, they have seared their hearts like stone. That's how bad they are. And on that basis, Jesus can say, no one can come to me. Not because something external prevents them. These people have cut off their legs so they can't come. These people have gouged out their eyes so they won't see. They can't come without God's gift. That's the framework which that's, that's, I mean, you you may not like that. You may disagree with me. I'm saying that's, I believe for anyone coming from a Calvinistic vantage point, that is the framework of the picture that's being presented. It's not this invisible glass wall because the same chapter in John six, Jesus is insistent. Everyone who comes to me, he doesn't turn anyone away. And I, I would say this, anyone who desires to come to Christ, anyone who wants Jesus can have him. There is nobody who wants Christ as Savior and Lord, to whom, sorry, you weren't chosen. Um, in fact, I'd say, go back to John 3, the very act of desire is an evidence of the work of God. Um, Jesus is simply saying, what I would say, you can't love what you don't love. You can't make yourself love what you don't love. You can't love the darkness and choose to stop loving the darkness. You can't hate the light and choose to start, I mean, you know what, I'm just going, by Jove, I'll start loving the light. You know, you can't do that. Um, I don't have control over my affections in that way. And, and so, anyway, this is a long excursus, Chris, but f- fair enough. Um, I'm sure I just opened a huge can of worms, and I'll punt on most of this, but go. Questions on that? Does that make any sense, that, that long little excursus? Was that what you wanted me to go down, Chris? Okay, okay. Um, no, but it's important to frame it this way, because the Bible's, if you don't frame it this way, you get the ogre God, who's kind of mean and choosy and picky, and what you get instead is this long provoke. I mean, think of the parable of the vineyard least to tenants. And, he, and the owner sends, this is Jesus describing what rebellious Israel is like. And he sends a messenger, hey, it's time to pay your rent. And they beat him. And he sends another one, and they beat him. And he sends another one, and they beat him. Then he sends his son, he says, they'll listen to my son. And they kill him. That's Stephen's sermon, as he recounts how again and again and again, the people of Israel, God would send them a prophet, God would send them someone to warn them, God would send them a deliver, and they would turn on them and turn on them and turn on them and turn on them and turn on them it's the story of the very patient, very gracious God, and the people who just will not turn to Him. That's the story, as I see the Bible presenting it. Um, and it's in that context that God says, "I will give some to my son. I, I will, I will, like Paul or Saul on the Damascus Road. I will, for my glory. I will, for my glory, um, I will for my glory and, and for my name, and for my son. I will save some." That's my. That's the way I see. The Bible laying these things out. And I think how you come at it is critical so that you you don't end up with the capricious, ill tempered, you know, God. But anyway, questions, any of that? There sure is nothing of any challenging this. Oh, Isla in the back. Okay.
2: Well, along that same line, um, seeing all the evil in the world today, I tend to think these people are so deceived. But are they indeed deceived? Are they just blinding their own eyes to the Lord?
0: It's a a little bit of both. Um, What we are responsible for, and the Bible would say is is on the charge against us, is we rejected the truth. All of us have a knowledge of some amount of truth through creation, through conscience. So, So, Romans 1 we know there's a creator God, we know he's glorious, we know he's powerful. We know right and wrong. We have a turn these set in our hearts. We have an inflection, an image of the law of God on our hearts, and yet we choose to do wrong. So all of that truth we have, that's not a complete revelation of truth, but it's a fair amount of truth. And we exchange that for a lie. Now, what the Bible says, once you exchange the truth for a lie, you don't necessarily get to pick what lie you believe. It might be Scientology, right? I mean, it might be pretty silly. Um, but there are other lies that are just more respectable, but from God's perspective are equally silly. Equally preposterous. So we, we like to you know, tease on Scientologists or the people with the tinfoil hats or whatever. But whatever lie you're believing instead of, of God's truth, it's equally tinfoil hatty. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, so Thessalonians talks about they, they refused to love the truth and then passive were turned aside to an error. So when you let go of the anchor of the truth... You do become deceived, and you're responsible for that deception because you let go of the anchor of the truth. But what particular brand of lie you get deceived by, oh, no, you don't get control. We want to be sophisticated sinners. And there's a sense which once we let go of the moorings, we're, we're, we're sitting ducks. And so people can believe some really silly, really preposterous things. But the whole point of, the, of Isaiah is... This is preposterous. This dude spent a month making this and sweating over it and cooking his food with a lot. So all of it is preposterous. But the one we believe isn't so preposterous. You see, I know the others are bad, but this one makes a bit more sense if you think about it. Um, and so, yeah. So you, to answer your question, no, we don't get to choose what particular lie we're deceived by, but that we end up being deceived is completely on us because we let go of the truth. That's, at least that's how I understand it. Um, But no, people are deceived. Um, But in in a way that doesn't remove culpability. Okay, questions, thoughts on any of this? Seriously, we just brought up election predestination, hardening of hearts, and no one's got to... I don't believe it. Come on. Oh, JP in the back. I'm doing something terribly wrong if you don't have questions on any of this stuff. so.
1: So... What if we go back to your Greg in the hole analogy and say that Adam jumped in the hole and I just was born in the hole and it's not my fault?
0: Sure, sure. No, no. I, I, that's that's fair. In fact, I think a lot of people's problem with um, election predestination really the problems with original sin. If you buy original sin, if, if you if you accept that, I don't see there's any. F- first of all, the primary objection and problem election predestination is not logical, it's, it's ethical. What would be just? What would be right? There's nothing logically incoherent about it. The question is, how can a righteous God do this? How can this be right? It's, it's a valid objection. I just want to make it clear. It's not a logical problem. It's, it's an ethical problem. Um, and I think the, the solution, I mean, there's a reason I'm, I'm audibling right now. What I was saying, Isaiah Uh, Audible just released a new edition of Luther's The Bondage of the Will. And I hated the old one because I didn't like the narrator. Um, No, she's she's great in another book, but it's hard having a woman read Martin Luther. It just breaks it for me. No, and I don't have a problem with the woman narrator. She reads C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces, and Nadia, whatever her last name is, is fantastic in that one. But I could not deal with because Luther's just insulting Erasmus and you kind of need a guy to do that like to properly. I mean, no, he says, Erasmus, your prose are like dung served on a silver platter. It's spicy. It's great. Luther is fun. He, and this is a fun read, but anyway, I'm going through it now with this new na- narrator, but Luther credits Erasmus. It's all about depravity. You've hit upon the linchpin. You've hit upon the issue. So you've got to actually go further back than the conflict between um, Arminius and, and, and Calvin. You've got to go back to the problem with Augustine and Pelagius. Um, go, to, go to Romans 5. Um, I'll summarize it this way, JP. What the, Bible, what the Bible teaches, what we mean by original sin, is this you are truly guilty. Not just affected by, truly guilty. You have guilt in Adam's sin. And I tend to think most people, their problems with that. Um, fair enough, that's a hard pill to swallow. I'm, I'm not trying to like, you know, ah! I'm just saying, let's identify where the rub is. I think the rub's actually here, um, not with everything else. Because if, if you grant what I think Romans 5 says, some other passages, but Romans 5 1 Corinthians 15 also, but Romans 5 is I think the most clear. Um, then you you have everybody jumped in the hole. Everyone's responsible for being in the hole. Um, f- fair enough. You're tracking me perfectly. So let me get to Romans 5. So what passage most clearly and succinctly teaches original sin? I would say Romans 5. Um, First, I want to I want to acknowledge I want to point out some of the context here. So five, twelve to fourteen, so five, actually thirteen to 14. 13 and fourteen, function as an aside. If you read twelve right into fifteen, it flows perfectly. Therefore, just as sin came in the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men. But the free gift is not like the trespass. It works perfectly. Thirteen and fourteen are an aside, um, an excursus to deal with, to support the last statement he made. As I read Romans 5.12, the last statement is because all sinned, which I think is original sin. Death spread through one, okay, so sin came into the world through one man, death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And it's what he means by that statement, all sinned, that 13 and 14 prop up, okay? And what I think he means is in Adam we all sinned. Um, and here's his argument for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given but sin is not counted where there is no law yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come okay I think here's Paul's argument premise one death only spreads to sinners only sinners can die um, so death came into the world through a man and sin came into the world through a man and death through sin Jesus could only die on the cross because he took our sin upon himself only sinners can die death is a judgment for sin point one point two working backwards people died and he picks Moses why, why does he pick Moses look at how he says yet death reigned from Adam to Moses why pick Adam to Moses um, law so if, if the, so I, I missed a step in the argument, sorry. <laughs> only sinners can die, and sin is only credited. He's using an accounting term. Sin is only reckoned to your account. You can only be charged and found guilty of sin if you've broken law. Only lawbreakers can sin. Death was in the world without the law. So from Moses on, no problem. Every, if you say, well, how is it these people in the wilderness died? Well, they had the law of Moses. They broke the law. Therefore, they were sinners. Therefore, death spread to them. Therefore, they were mortal, and they died. What about the people before Moses? What about the people from Adam to Moses? What about them? What law did they break? And his argument is, without breaking law, look at it in in 13, sin was indeed in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. The people between Adam and Moses died proving they're sinners. So they're sinners. But you can't have sin credited to you without breaking law. What law did the people between Adam and Moses break? There's only one possible law, don't eat. That's Paul's argument, as I understand it. So the proof that we are guilty in Adam, the proof that we are judged guilty in Adam, is that the generations between Adam and Moses died, and that there was no other possible law they could have broken than do not eat. That's the argument. Let me show you that I think that's accurate. He then goes on in the rest of five to to, to put up Christ and Adam as heads of people groups. And they, our whole argument is the whole argument is this person, Adam or Jesus, what they did is credited to their people. It's, that's the whole argument. It's imputation. Jesus does an act of righteousness, his people are counted righteous. Adam doesn't work of sin, and these people are counted sinners. The, the reactions of the first Adam and the second Adam are imputed to their people. That's the whole argument. Let's read. The free gift is not like the trespass. 15. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. For the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For judgment followed one man's trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who have received the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the woman Jesus Christ. So what he's done up to this point is contrasted death and life. One man brought curse, one man brought blessing. One man brought death, one man brought life. Now he's going to show the similarity. One man's actions are imputed to his people, the other man's actions are imputed to his people. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. You and I were made sinners because of Adam's disobedience. That's imputation. That's and that means we're treated as really guilty. Um, and Pelagius did not like this. He and he and Augustine fought over this. Um, and and so this, I think, really accepting, swallowing, owning original sin, and what Paul's arguing here is honestly the part that people trip up on when they try to deal with election predestination. Um, it's, it's really, which is why I said, no, they really start out the neutral people, the innocent people, the people that aren't that bad. Well, what you're saying is the people who weren't made sinners in Adam, I think is what you're saying. And I get, that, I get the desire to say, I get where that comes from. I'm not, I'm not belittling that. I'm just saying, I think that is a direct conflict with Paul. Yes, Lee.
2: Well, I see kind of a well, they're doing the parallels. One man sins, so everybody's a sinner. One man doesn't sin Christ and everybody's righteous. It's yes. not everybody's righteous because you have to get chosen to be righteous and you see what I mean? That that everybody gets Adam's crap. Yes, yes. But everybody doesn't get Jesus' good stuff yes. unless God Gives yes. it to him, so I can see there's a, a tension there that yeah. the, in, the so-called innocent people would get Adam's bad sure. stuff.
0: Your yeah. son, your son behind you, has something to say.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the the, quest, the the real issue is: Are we in Adam or are we in Christ? the The issue of election is God taking us out of Adam's federal headship and placing us in Christ's federal headship. So everyone that is in Adam is guilty in Adam and everyone that is in Christ is no longer guilty in Adam. That guilt has been, has been assuaged and it has been replaced with the full legal forensic righteousness of
2: Christ.
0: Right. And it's, I, and, get, and, and, I, I get
2: that. But then the question to me is why doesn't, I mean, not that I'm going to challenge God's wisdom, but it's like, well, if there's, it's that sim- simple in a sense, why then doesn't just all the people just get the switch? He deals with that in nine. Yeah, I'm sure he does. I know he does. <laughs>
0: Let's turn to nine. Let's turn to nine. Fair, fair. But, but I want to pause and make one point. What we, what we must not do is say, I know it looks, and I'm not saying you're doing this. What you're saying could be open to this. We will swallow the hard pill of guilt and Adam because we get the nice pill of righteousness in Christ. And those sort of balances out. You've got to start with guilt and Adam. Forget God doesn't have to send Jesus. That's just and Righteous. Otherwise, it's going to be balanced. I know this bit's bad, and it's kind of hard, and you won't like it. But you'll like this bit, and when you pick them together, you'll see. No. You got If we're guilty in Adam, we're guilty in Adam. And that's righteous and just and holy and good. Full stop. Done. Now, amazingly, God. Otherwise, the temptation's going to be, well, Adam got everybody, but Jesus didn't. So that seems a little unfair. So Romans 9, why doesn't God save everyone? Because he could. Everyone has to admit that. The Arminian does. The Arminian says, why not? because he doesn't want to violate man's free will, but well, he could it does say
2: Jesus died for all. Yeah. So is it, but it, then it, then you can pick it apart and say, well, he died for all who he chose. So, sure. I mean, yeah, it's, it, there's a lot of picking apart that can happen.
0: Yeah. So let me, let me pause and just say everyone who's remotely <laughs> biblical recognizes God could save everyone if he wanted to, mm-hmm. if his highest desire is to save everyone, he could. The, the, the biggest free will Arminian admits that. What we all recognize is clearly he wants something more than to save everyone. And the, the Arminian would say what he wants is a free, uncoerced love choice. That's what he wants more. But what they're saying is God would rather have people go to hell than override their free will. Okay, so you've got a hierarchy of desires. You've got an ordering of desires, which doesn't mean the desire to save all is not true. It just means it's not the top desire. Only the universalist has that be God's top desire, right? Um, so then on my end, what this God, I can say God truly does want all to be saved. It's not his top desire. I would say his top desire is given in Romans 9. Um, and these are hard passages. I mean, this, in some sense, it's fitting. Jesus, this is a hard teaching. There are some angular difficult parts in the scripture. And, but when, when this problem gets directly addressed, I'm not going to be ashamed of it. I'll, I'll own. This is, this is hard stuff. This is challenging. And so I don't want to like, you know, just suck it up, you pansies. This is, but, but at the same time, this direct question gets asked. This direct question gets answered. God has something to say about it. And so we, we would do well to listen. So in Romans 9, he says, verse 19, You will say, then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? I think that's the exact question people ask. But who are you, men? To answer back to God, well, what is molded, say to its molder? why have you made me like this? It's a potter now right over the clay to make one out of the same lump, one vessel for honorable use, one from a dishonorable. Verse 22 and 23, I think, give the answer. This is actually, Dave, part of what Edwards is, is unpacking in that book I gave you. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? What if God wants some people to be objects and demonstrations of justice, holiness, and wrath? I, I don't want to pardon everyone because I want to demonstrate my justice. And I, and I want to pardon some. I want, I, God wants to put on full display all of his attributes. I'm holy and just. And some, there's, and you've got to own grace. I'm not obligated to save them. It is good for the universe to see justice. It is good for, the, for my glory the angels for the redeemed to see the demonstration of my holiness and my justice. That is good. I want to do that and so I'm not pardoning everyone. And we've got to fight the fairness doctrine, which is if you've pardoned one, you've got to pardon the other. The parable of the, uh, the landowner who pays people different pay rates makes it clear. And so the part of us that thinks that's not fair doesn't understand grace. Grace cannot be obligated. Whatever it is you think God ought to do, Definitionally, just stopped being grace. Definitionally. Cannot be grace. Um, so, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he's prepared beforehand for glory? Now, that I'm not saying that's the totality of God's answer. He may have many more reasons than that. That's the answer we got. The first part is, Don't point your finger and wag it at God. You can ask, but you don't come going, you better explain yourself. That's, okay, pot, be quiet. Uh, And then, for the person who's not coming wagging their finger at God, have you considered that God may well want to actually show all of his attributes? May want to reveal all of his character? That may be his purpose? And that's not to say that's the totality of his purpose. Dave, Mr. Lample... I can't call Dave Mr. Lample. Um, here you go, Dave.
1: The big question in, in the final days of this earth, why, after 1,000 years in prison, does Christ release Satan right. when he knows what he's going to do? Why? Because God is glorified when Christ calls down fire from heaven and boom right. and throws him in the sea. God is glorified in people seeing his wrath against unbelievers.
0: Yeah. No, it, it, it is it's the story about the great, awesome God. It's not the story about the really swell people. And every time we start to make it the story about the really swell people, you're going, to a, you're going to either be embarrassed of the biblical narrative or you're going to start twisting it to become more man-centered. It, it's, um, we are caught up as a love gift to the Son. Why, in one sense, why did God save me? Because he gave me to his Son to glorify his Son in redeeming me. Like, I'm, in some sense, I'm incidental. <laughs> I mean, from one angle. Now, that's not to remove or to downplay God's love for me, but he loves his Son more than he loves me. Good grief. And ultimately, it's the father's love for the son and the son's love for the father that makes me secure. Why will Jesus not let me slip through his hands? Because he loves me so much. His stated reasons, my father told me not to lose any. So I can count on the son's love of the father as the basis of my security. Not his love for me. I'm not saying his love for me is small. I'm just saying Jesus' statement of why none slip through. My, my father gave me this command. His will is that I lose none of those he gave to me. And so at the end of the day, I don't have to worry about, well, maybe he doesn't love me enough to hold on to me. He loves his father enough to hold on to me. And on that note, we will uh, bid you all adieu. God bless, Godspeed, and good day.